0: Welcome listeners to the Insight Podcast with Don Mills and David Campbell. It is April 22nd and today we're going to talk about the importance of population growth.
1: And this is the uh, second of a three-part series that uh, we have been we started last week to uh, make the case for population growth. Uh, today we're going to look a little bit closer at immigration attraction and we have a special guest coming up uh, a little later on in the program.
0: So Don, I think the the conversation we've been having is around the demographic situation, which is driving our need for immigration and to attract population to Atlantic Canada. We have uh, something like 300,000 people that are heading toward retirement. They're over the age of 55 and they will be retiring within the next decade or so. Uh, and we don't have nearly enough young people coming into the labor market to replace those workers, let alone provide new workers to actually grow the economy in the years ahead. So we need to figure out where we're going to get that population. We haven't seen a lot of population growth in recent years, and I know you're going to share some data with us, but I think our big challenge is uh, convincing the public and convincing stakeholders across Atlantic Canada that we need population growth, and then getting down to the business of attracting uh, folks to our region.
1: That's right. So uh, let's let's just take a look at the big picture. In Canada, uh, population growth has been very steady over the last 60 years. Uh, it's almost magical. Every year, population grows by about 1% every year, year in and out for 60 years. And uh, of that number, recently, 80% of that growth has come from immigrants. And it's predicted at the the number will increase to nearly 100% of population growth being attributed to immigrants over the next three to five years. So if you contrast that into what's happened in Atlantic Canada, we have trailed uh, forever in terms of population growth. How bad is it? Well, if you look at a place like uh, Newfoundland as an example, in the last census they they grew their population a whopping 1% over five years. In the last four years, they've lost 1.5% of their population. So they're, they're now lower than they were in 2016. New Brunswick was the only province in Canada in the last census to lose population, lost half a percent of the population in the last, in the last census. The good news is that the province has uh, rebounded and has grown over the last four years 2.2%, so that's great. Um, and then Nova Scotia, Nova Scotia had modest growth of only 0.2 percent of its population in the last census, but it's rebounded really nicely to plus 3.5 percent. So that's averaging 0.7 of a percent a year. Now the winner in the lottery for growing population has been PEI. They led the growth, uh, the last two census in uh, in Canada for this region. Uh, last uh, census was 1.9%. But look at this. After four years, their population is up 8%. They lead the country in population growth. And and why is that important? As we th- talked about in the last podcast, uh, David, there is a relationship between economic growth and population growth. Indeed, the uh Little Island of uh, Prince Edward Island has led economic growth in this region and in the country over the last uh, four or five years. They're averaging 2% a year. The average for Canada has been 1.7%. So you have to attribute a lot of that economic growth to population growth. And uh, as we talked about before, one of the things that, that's changed my mind, I used to think that we needed to have economic opportunity to attract people to the, to our region turns out it's the opposite we need to attract people who will create economic opportunity and if you think about having 1% more people living in a in a province that means one more percent of people who need to find a place to live to be fed to be entertained uh, and and that creates economic opportunity
0: yeah about between 70 and 80% of GDP is associated with household and business spending in the local market or in the provincial economy. So if you don't have a growing population, you are almost by default, not. it's going to be extremely difficult to grow your economy. The export sectors are very, very important, that other 20 or 30% of your economy. But really, most of the economic activity in a place like Halifax or Charlottetown is household spending on goods and services. So yes, we need to have population growth uh, to drive economic growth. And quite frankly, uh, that brings us to the subject of today, which is immigration. And um, if you look at the national numbers, going back to 2013, Stats Canada through the labor force survey tracks uh, immigrants in the workforce and those born in Canada in the workforce. Across the country, the workforce born in Canada has actually shrunk slightly between 2013 and 2020. Whereas the immigrant workforce has grown by almost a million or actually a little over a million. So the all net growth in the workforce across the country has been immigrants. And if you look at this region, we've seen uh, a a even larger decline among those born in Canada, but we haven't made it up with the immigrant numbers. So that's why you've seen uh, shrinking workforces mostly around the region. Again, as you indicated earlier, Nova Scotia, uh, there has been some green shoots in the last couple of years in uh, New Brunswick as well, particularly the large urban centers, but PEI was, uh, as we said last week, I think that PEI was first out of the gate. They figured it out. Uh, and I think they, they're now benefiting from those dividends. Uh, as you indicated, Newfoundland and Labrador has got its own set of challenges and, and, um, but I think the same argument, uh, has to be put in place there too. And I had a conversation just yesterday with folks in Newfoundland and Labrador, and they're actually looking at, much more aggressively now, looking at population attraction, specifically into sectors like IT and sectors where healthcare, where they need workers. But it's the same idea. If they can start growing the population, it is going to actually positively impact their economy, even as they look to address some of these big challenges around, uh, you know, their, their main export industries.
1: Well, let's just talk about Newfoundland for a second because it's really interesting. If you look at their strategy for immigrant uh, attraction, their, their target, their target uh, for 2020 was to attract uh, 1,700 uh, immigrants to the province. And if you look at their numbers, they actually came close. It was 1,500 and change. The problem was is that that's the wrong target. The target is completely inadequate. Completely inadequate. And I've actually said this in Newfoundland out loud and got out alive uh, having said it. But mm-hmm. the fact of the matter is, their real goal is over 5,000 people a year. They're not even. They're only a third of the way there. And so, uh, their their immigration strategy has failed, uh, uh, not because they haven't ha- don't have one, but, but but because their objectives are are really uh, not not right. Now contrast that to PEI. Uh, that uh, its goal should be to grow their population by about 1% a year. I think that's the goal for everybody. I know that you would like to see New Brunswick go, grow by 1.2% to get to a million people, and that, I think that's actually achievable. But uh, in, in PEI, the goal would be 1,600 per year. Well, they've been averaging over 2,000 new immigrants for the last five years. They're, they're overperforming in terms of uh, uh, attraction. And then, if you look at the other the other two provinces, uh, Nova Scotia, their goal should be close to ten thousand a year. They actually achieved ten thousand last year, uh, and they're close to the right target in terms of their immigration. Uh, for New Brunswick, the target really needs to be close to eight thousand, um, and the last uh, numbers, uh, most recent numbers, were about five thousand for immigrants. So. You know, we've made a lot of progress in the land of Canada, having said that, over the last five years. We were not in the game five years ago, except for PEI. I think people, uh, governments have recognized that um, having an immigration strategy is important. The problem, David, as you know, is that it's very uneven. So if you look at the six largest urban areas, um, they represent 47% of the population. Twenty years ago, they represented forty uh, percent, and uh, you know, fifty-five percent of GDP. So there are winners and losers, and if you live in, in urban areas, it, you're not necessarily a winner. Um, and 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 the unevenness of population growth is is something that everybody needs to be aware of.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, the the reality is that a lot of our rural and smaller communities have not been growing in recent years, but they've been surviving based on the current labor market situation. And now even those areas are seeing workforce shortages. So it's no longer an issue of can we grow or not, it's an issue of we will actually start to shrink. And why that matters is because the first jobs to go in many cases are the export focused jobs. And if you start to lose your exporters, your sawmills, your manufacturers, your tourism jobs, uh, it's really, really going to hurt uh, all economies around the province. So I, you and I have talked about this. I, I do believe the, the greatest potential for growth in Atlantic Canada is in the urban centers, but we can't just ignore our smaller towns, our smaller uh, communities, our rural areas, because they are now facing, in my, in my uh, opinion, in many cases, an existential crisis. Because what do you do? if you have a community that loses half its population over the next decade or or 15 years, right? And what does that do to the quality of life for the people and the citizens in that area? So I think this has to be pan-Atlantic. It has to be urban, rural, small town, large city. And as you say, already Halifax, Moncton, Fredericton, Charlottetown are pretty well there. Now we have to be thinking about the rest of the the region and, and what's the right approach.
1: Which brings us to our our guest today. Um, we're really pleased to have a, had a conversation with Jim Irving, the co-CEO of the JD Irving Group of Companies. Um, you know, this is a significant organization, the largest uh, single um, private sector employer in the region, um, and uh, and many people might not know the. The sort of uh, reach of of the JDI uh, group of, of companies, but they would have brands like uh, brands that people would know, like Cavendish Farms, uh, Kent Homes, Kent Building Supplies. On the on the business side, the Midland Transport and Courier, um, Majesta line of uh, paper products, uh, and of course uh, the Halifax Shipbuilding um, enterprise. Uh, so. They're uh, they, they, you know they're a big uh, big employer in this region, and uh, as the discussion with Jim indicates, uh, they're starting to look uh, further afield and grow their footprint elsewhere. And they've got some big uh, big things going on in other parts uh, of uh, North America.
0: Yeah, so it, it, we had a great conversation uh, with him. The reality is that it's getting harder and harder to find workers in sectors like transportation in uh, manufacturing, in logging, uh, uh, tree planting, these kinds of industries, it's just getting very, very hard to find workers, uh, even though wages have gone up in those sectors in recent years. So just like their counterparts across the country, they have to look, uh, uh, JDI has to look further afield for workers. And I think, as as the interview will show, they're doing some very innovative and interesting things uh, to bring people from around the world to settle and start building their careers in New Brunswick.
1: And I think the other thing that's interesting is that uh, JDI is normally a very private organization, as you know, but they, they've gone public with their uh, labor uh, needs over the next three years. Uh, they anticipate hiring uh, in their company overall, almost 10,000 people across all their operations, 8,000 of which are within Atlantic Canada. So they've created a pretty, uh, formidable uh, HR uh, practice uh, focused on immigrants and, and some of the things that they've done, I think are, are a good model for other private sector operators. And uh, I'm hoping that uh, by sharing um, their story, other, other people in the private sector in this region will, will learn some, uh, some good opportunities for them.
0: Yeah, that's right. So they have a team, he tells us, of 11 full-time equivalent people working on immigration across the companies. So that's a pretty big team. But of course, as you indicated, it's also a very big uh, organization. But I think there's lessons uh, in our conversation with uh, Jim Irving about what other firms can do. And the other thing I like about it is that is that the immigrants that are being brought in by the big firms are bringing spouses and they're bringing, in some cases, even teenage uh, children. Uh, and these are secondary uh, um, additions to the workforce. Uh, And they don't have to be recruited internationally. So local, small, and medium-sized businesses can actually recruit these uh, uh, spouses right off the street here in the community, and that makes it easier for them. So what we have is a situation where you have the large firms like the Irvings doing the heavy lifting on the international recruitment, uh, and then the secondary employment from spouses and children is actually benefiting the rest of the workforce here uh, in the region.
1: I think the other thing that's impressive is that they've actually uh, also concentrate on settlement uh, support for uh, newcomers to the region, which is normally the venue of, uh, of the public sector. So it shows the importance of a private sector uh, involvement and in not just the recruitment, but the retention side of the equation. So uh, I think people will enjoy this uh, rare opportunity uh, to hear directly from uh, Jim Irving.
0: Right. And he's got good ideas. So I loved his idea of a sort of a nexus type status for employers that have to do a lot of international recruiting, trying to make it easier and quicker uh, for them once they've proven uh, that they're a credible employer uh, when it comes to hiring and, 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 uh, and working with newcomers in, into the country. So listeners are going to hear some interesting and good ideas uh, from Mr. Irving. Uh, and I think they'll enjoy this conversation
1: so please listen in here is jim irving david and i are pleased to be joined by jim irving who is the co-ceo along with his brother robert of jd irving limited often referred to as jdi um, welcome jim thanks for participating
2: good good morning don and david good to see you both
1: uh jim most people don't know much about jd irving limited uh, perhaps you can tell us uh, just a little about the history of the company maybe how and when it was started and uh, how it has evolved over the years
2: well Don look we're a, we're a maritime based head offices in st. John we' we have operations in North America here Canada and and the us we're a highly diversified company fully uh, full line and forest products very large landowner all integration from sawmills pulp paper through to tissue Uh and so we're very much engaged in that side, of it, but a number of other businesses, transportation, shipping, rail, trucking, uh, shipbuilding, food business, French fries, and uh, re- retail. So very diverse company, uh, but heavily based here in Atlantic Canada, but with operations, as we say, in uh, other outside of Atlantic Canada and other parts of Canada and the U.S. So, uh, but this is home for us, and we're, yes. we're proud of that.
1: Uh, when was the company actually uh formed what what year
2: oh i well the first sawmill uh goes back to 1882 so we would have been uh uh my i guess it would have been my great great grandfather and uh so they started in Baktoosh, and in those days they were you know they had in the 1880s and early 1900s they had sawmill in a general store, a grist mill, a carding mill, a large farming operation, and a few other things. And then my, my grandfather came back after the uh, First World War and, as a young man, uh, and he got into the selling Ford cars as an agency, and that integrated into uh, the gasoline business. And he was a, obviously a real entrepreneur, and he had interest, and his interest in ships and lumber and land and and other things stayed with him so he diversified the company and then uh, his three sons jim Art, and jack my father being jim uh they took various parts of the business and grow them and expanded them and and uh, and so on and today uh my brother robert and i look after the uh this part of the business was called jdi which is really other businesses. We're no longer connected with Irving Oil, but uh, they still are uh, their family and they do a great job in the oil business down here. We're very proud. So it all works, but we're glad to be here at home in uh, in St. John and, and Moncton.
1: Now, the JDI is the, the largest private sector employer in Atlantic Canada, I believe, with an increasing national and international presence, as you have uh, mentioned. Um, uh, you're also a really highly integrated organization, and as you mentioned, many many different sectors from forestry, manufacturing, transportation, retail, and shipbuilding. Uh, it's really an amazing story. What do you think is the key to the success of the JDI group of companies?
2: Well, look, I, you know, I would suppose we're, we're fortunate. Number one, we have great people. You know, uh, we're very fortunate to have a good group of men and women run and operate and the various businesses. And I think, you know, uh, being home in the Maritimes, it's a great place to live. And uh, so we, we're we not distracted with a lot of the other issues you might have in, in big cities. And so we work. And, uh, you know, we work at it and every day. And uh, that's been uh, my father and his, his brothers and my grandfather and so on. Everybody's worked uh, quite dedicated to the business. And I think if you're going to be successful, you have to have real dedication in anything you do, any field, whether it's you know professional sports or science or business, whatever it might be. You have to be very dedicated. So we're, and it's exciting. It's fun. You know, it's in, there's nothing like uh, winning and having working with a good group of men and women. Uh, and you know, we feel good when we win, and we feel bad when we lose at it. And we get up the next day and make it better. So that's the philosophy. Not
0: complicated. Mr. Irving, uh, I think most people know your company because of the pulp and paper mills and Kent building supplies and your operations in New Brunswick and across Atlantic Canada. But um, as Don indicated earlier, you're a global company now. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about your expanding international and national footprint. So where, where else are you operating these days and, and some of your recent expansions?
2: Well, we look. Uh, we've got a, a large number of, of uh, a large amount of tissue production in the U.S. Uh, for example, in, uh, in Fort Edward, New York, and Macon, Georgia, we have a French plant, Jamestown, uh, North Dakota. We have uh, a couple of lumber mills in the state of Maine and a large timberland presence in the state of Maine, and uh, those are the primary uh, operations outside of uh, outside of Canada. Uh, and so, uh, but the world's changing. And as we have customers requirements, or business opportunities, then we, you know, we try and take advantage of them. But when we have good customer relations, where we good customers, you want to look after them, give them full service, look after their requirements. And that's very important to us.
0: I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot I, because you have operations in all these other places. I'm wondering if you could comment on how we compete here in Atlantic Canada. Is this a, is this a good place to do business when you compare us with Macon, Georgia and some of these other jurisdictions that you're operational in, or is that a question you don't, you don't want to uh, weigh in on? No, you, you,
2: look, there's always variations and you know, there's things you'd like to change. Uh, and, but th- this is home and you know, where you find things that aren't, you know, they should be perhaps, then you you work with the governments to try and help the situation. You know, we subscribe to the adage, you know, the harder we work, the luckier we get. And so we make our own luck and you work at it and you try and fix the problem. But no question about it, it's a global world out there. And uh, to get governments to realize it, sometimes it's a bit of a challenge, but we have to go with the facts, the figures, the presentations and convince uh, governments if we're not competitive in some aspect, that uh, here's what we should do. And generally speaking, over enough time, you can get there, but it takes effort. Uh,
0: So the head office sector in New Brunswick is worth about $300 million worth of export revenue. That's money that comes into New Brunswick to support the head office operations of companies like yours and McCain's and others. Uh, So it's a huge economic impact, and I don't think many people really understand just how big it is. Uh, but I guess as you expand your business interests beyond Atlantic Canada is, is that is, is St. John and Moncton, is that still the nerve center? Are are there expansion opportunities and economic benefits to, from your, in your head office from these expense, expansions across Canada and across the U S?
2: Oh, you know, you're on an important subject. Having a, having a head office locally is, I think it's very important for any, any Atlantic Canadian, uh, Province. We, well, you, you have the, you know. Generally speaking, if the head owner, if the head office is here, the owner is here, and or the shareholders or other people, and so you know, they have a community interest. They have an interest in uh, perhaps a longer term view of investments than uh, other folks might have, and they have a lot of local pride, and and I think the employees are proud of the local uh, success. So. No, I think uh, having a head office is, is very good. And I know as you, as you grow, we're fortunate to be able to live here in this part of the world because it's a great place to live. You can't beat it as far as I'm concerned. And if you can do business uh, nationally or internationally, then you got the best of both worlds. And with technology today, that's becoming more and more uh, easier to do. So, but we should have head offices here. We should, the more head offices we can keep here, I think Atlanta Atlantic Canada, we all are.
1: Uh, Jim, in the last few years, you've uh, been quite public about the number of jobs that uh, that you'll need over the next number of years. Can you tell our listeners how many people you need to hire uh, over the next few years in Atlantic Canada?
2: Oh, we, we, we would say, uh, well, I tell you, across permanent jobs across North America, it's somewhere around 9,600, but Atlantic Canada, I guess it's about 8,000 over the next three years, 21, 22, 23. Now that takes in, that sounds like a lot of people, but you know, in that we'd have turnover, we'd have retirees, we'd have some seasonal workers, but there's no question about it. We'll have about oh, 2,600 students over those three years, about seven-eight 800 students a year with us in Canada and the US. Uh, they you know, they, whether they're working in a retail business in the summertime or planting trees or as a permanent co-op student, uh, perhaps working in the pulp mill, pulp and paper mills. So those are the broad numbers and uh, and we're fortunate we have, a, you know, a lot of good people, we have good universities here in Atlantic Canada, good community colleges. So they provide a lot of very good folks.
1: Uh, but clearly we don't have enough people in Atlantic Canada to fill all the jobs that are coming available over the next few years as baby boomers especially start to retire. Uh, what types of jobs are the most challenged to fill at the moment?
2: Well, I would say, generally speaking, you know, uh, if you want to say uh, uh, our, our workforce, our hourly workforce is, is, uh, is probably the biggest challenge. I mean, we, as we said, we have summer students coming in, so we sort of have a, you know, with the universities, generally speaking, in Atlanta Canada, we have a good pipeline of, of skilled uh, management folks. Uh, but on the hourly folks, there's no question about it. We, since, uh, 2017, we've brought in about 400, uh, these would be folks that work in hourly positions. And over the next three years, we're going to have about an additional 400, uh, folks to come in at the present time. That's our plan. And then we'll bring in about seasonal workers somewhere around 80 a year uh, for the season. And, uh, so. You know, that's the group. I mean, we're very pleased about the retention rate, generally speaking. Our retention rate's running about 85%, 86% in uh, the last few years. So we we think that's quite important. It's it's very important for us to get the folks settled here and put the roots down, get their families here. We just don't want them here on a two-year work visa and then disappear. We want their families here. And that's critical. As you folks know, this is critical to making sure that we can grow the long-term population because without it, we're in big trouble.
0: Yeah, so it's a challenge facing the entire economy, but obviously you as a large employer uh, are at the front end of that. What um, When you drive around the province, you see a lot of JDI ads on the side of the road uh, promoting uh, job opportunities, these big, big billboards, but what other strategies have you adopted to deal with these labor force challenges? You talked about immigration. Are there other strategies that you're taking? Uh,
2: oh, oh, yeah. Well, I tell you, I tell you we are, we, you know, and we talk about it internally here this way. We say keep them home, number one, keep them home. We don't want the folks leaving here and going to Toronto. Nothing wrong with Toronto, great spot, but we'd like just to visit there. We'd like to stay. We want people to stay here. So keep them home, young people, and that's very important to us. Uh, keep young people here. They have to have the opportunity, of course. They have to be have creative and energetic and, and good, good paying opportunities. So we're, we're focused on a keep them at home, grow them at home, and that's building our, Atlantic, uh, you know, our skills in Atlantic Canada We're, you know, the community colleges, for example, and we're very much a part of that community college effort to, particularly in New Brunswick here and Nova Scotia, how to really make the community colleges uh, help us grow the workforce because people can make a good income if they have a good skill, and that will help keep them here. Then we're about bringing them, we say, bring them home bring Atlanta Canadians home. And we're hard at that. We're advertising Facebook or wherever else it might be. If you're out, if you've had enough of Toronto or some other jurisdiction you want to come back, why don't you come here? And then we say, make it home. So, and that's for the, the immigrants, the, the population of new Canadians, if you will. And we're uh, very much, very active in that to, to how do we make that work? So people come to Atlanta, Canada, but stay here. And so whether that's foreign national students out of the universities or immigrant uh new canadians we're, we're on it both so we're we we run those four slogans uh, keep them home grow at home grow at home uh, bring them home make it home it's all about that and that's the genesis for those boards to billboard to see on the highways
0: yeah, it's a good approach for the for the whole province to take that uh, to do that kind of thing uh, i wanted to ask you a little bit about rural communities because you you're you're in some ways you're pretty unique in that you have a lot of rural operations as well. And we're, it's one thing to try and attract people into say Moncton or St. John, it's another thing to attract them to St. Leonard or uh, Chipman or, uh, you know, or, or Dope town or any of your rural operations. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing to meet that workforce demand in rural areas? We know we have housing challenges there. There's other kind of challenges uh, recruiting into these smaller rural areas. Sure.
2: Just before I do, just to finish off that other comment about, you know, growing the, our, our workforce here, why we're being so aggressive about, it? you know, we listen to all the sad sacks, but we can't do this and we can't do that. We say, you know, enough of that. It, you know, we say, you know, the harder we work, the luckier we get. So let's work hard and make our own luck. And we've got to be a bit more creative and, and be responsible about saying, okay, we can do something about this just to rely on the government to fix it all. That's that's the government. They're busy with a lot of things and the government, I would say governments need help from the private sector about creative ideas. It's just a government come and fix this for me. We want to work in partnership with the governments uh, and particularly, you know, you raise rural housing. So this is a rural New Brunswick and, and immigrants and so on. And one of the big things is we uh, once we get them here and we uh, we should come uh, come to that in a minute. About what, what's it take to get them here. But if you're on about rural, we say one of the biggest issues is housing. Uh, you know, there's not enough houses, whether it's apartments, the inventory of houses are run down, and so on. So, someplace like Chipman, for example, we worked with the community in Chipman and the provincial government, we're putting up some houses, adding more. And this is about, uh, you know, people gotta have a reasonable, they've got a good place to live, particularly they're gonna bring their families. We bring. Temporary foreign workers, we have camps, a number of camps around, uh, whether it's logging camps, first-class facilities over people, and, we're, and they're well looked after, but the fundamentals are we've got to get the housing situation sorted out. So we say to the province, look, it's very difficult for a developer to go put up houses in central New Brunswick, Chipman or someplace, limited market, very hard to get the financing. He said, look, you should have some creative way uh, that the developer... Maybe the employer, you know, like ourselves or Cook Aquaculture or somebody else or, uh, 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 you know, other folks who have businesses, fish plants, perhaps. They're interested in, in taking, putting some effort into it, putting some money in, taking some risk. It's not all loaded on the government. Take some risk, But get the housing stock up. And then, and then so we start and we, and we build the houses. So, uh. Yeah, like Norm Casey. I was thinking of Norm and Casey and Richard Bucko is another example was, you know, if you're running businesses in rural New Brunswick, housing becomes a challenge pretty quickly. And so we have to we need to be a bit more creative in partnership with the government. How to do that? Whose balance sheet are we going to use? How are we going to share the risk? So that's a we, that's maybe the one of the biggest things. I mean, there's all kinds of other things we have to do, but we've got to, people gotta get the basics right. have got to have a comfortable place to live.
0: Yeah, that's right. And in fact, I my estimate is we're going to have to double the housing stock, uh, uh, the annual housing starts in the province uh, in the near future. And a lot of that will be centered in rural areas, which don't have a lot of recent history with, uh, with new housing, right, as you indicated. So it's a real challenge, not only in New Brunswick, but across uh, Atlantic Canada. So I'll turn it back to uh, Don. Uh,
1: I understand that you've been focused on recruiting workers from other countries. Uh, Jim, in fact, I, I heard... This might not be the right story. You can correct me here, but understand that you, had a specific uh, initiative to recruit truck drivers uh, in the past, uh, focused on a certain uh, uh, certain countries, um, and that uh, you also have a team specifically <clears throat> responsible for immigration. Uh, can you tell us about your efforts in yeah, this regard? Yeah.
2: Yes. So that's a, that's a big subject. So. And if you take it, I guess, you know, we, we've got it in sort of, for us, we've got about three big buckets. And uh, to start with, uh, and I can cover each of them if you want, uh, we've got a team of about 11 people, full-time equivalents, seven recruiters and immigration people, and then four, what we call settlement specialists. And uh, so that's quite a commitment to it, you know, but we have, we just can't say this is the corner of the desk and deal with it when you get to it. This is serious. We can't run the business if we don't have the folks when we need skilled folks. So we've we've staffed up, put some people on it so we can work with the government and, and, you know, the federal government, provincial, municipal. We're working with multicultural associations, the YMCA. uh, Who's going to teach these folks English? How are we going to do it? Sometimes the government does it, sometimes we do it. But we can't just... Somebody thinks, "Well, I go bring immigrants in. that's just once you hire them, they're all set." That's the small part of the job. Big part of the job is when they're here to look after them. And by, by and large, we've we've had success. The people we've had we're is low, but we have to make commitment really look after the folks. And it, it goes beyond uh, giving them a paycheck. If you take the trucking business, for example, you mentioned truckers, transportation people. We, we've hired about eight folks. In the last uh, couple of years, three years or so, folks coming from Ukraine, Israel, Poland, Russia, primarily to St. John and Moncton, but in other jurisdictions too, like Sussex or, or in the logging business or Chipman. And uh, we've, had, we've had very good retention rate. And these folks are all making you know they're making above the provincial average of wages. provincial average is 46, 48000 dollars. David, you would know better than I. but in that, in that zone. And these folks will be making $55,000, some are making $60,000. So they're going to be paying taxes and they're going to be moving the provincial income here on average and that's what we need to do in the province is have folks who are bringing the average up. That's where the tax dollars come from. So we have that in the trucking business. uh, In the Woodlands, our forestry business, we've had about 90 or so hires, I guess. And those are forest truck drivers, machine operators, a lot of coming from Ukraine, Brazil, and they're going to central New Brunswick, Chipman, Fratic, and Sussex, uh, Juniper area. And you'd say, why do you have to go to Brazil to get folks to cut wood? You know, New Brunswick's cut wood for 200 years. You so can't we figure that out. But I can tell you, these folks come. They're well-trained and uh, they do a very good, they want to work. And this is, you know, not to be hard on this, but... You know, motivation is a big part of this exercise. We have to have folks who really want to go at it. And this is a better, their life, they come to a better uh, better quality of life coming to Canada, frankly. And so that's good for them, good for us. And so we're very pleased with that. And then, uh, you know, in our seasonal workforce, tree planting and over in the island of Cavendish. Now we get got folks coming in about, oh, about 35 a year. I think this bring in 60, if we can get it all through the hoops, mobile hoops. Uh, this is all about uh, folks coming from Mexico and Jamaica, whatnot, where they'll plant trees, thin trees, work on the, work on the farming operation at Cavendish. Again, very good workers, very good workers. and. Uh, You know how do we engage other New Brunswickers to do this? That's a big subject. Uh, Then we got the shipyard over in Halifax. We've got 160 or so folks there, and that is primarily uh, what you call white-collar jobs, if you will, highly skilled engineers and so on. And we're we're bringing folks. that are all located in Halifax, and we're you know high rate retention in the 90s, and and so. we, we need that skill in Canada and hope. But it's all about getting these folks here, getting their families established, and that to me is a big exercise. So we work, we've we had enough, we've been at it long enough and have enough experience at it to understand some of the problems, you know? And uh, so we hope, hopefully we're working with the government to try and fix some of these problems.
1: Well, Jim, you know, uh, I think JDI serves as a bit of a role model for other people. <clears throat> And, the, and certainly, I believe that the private sector needs to be uh, more open about uh, the need for immigration in our region, and 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 uh, and to make sure that uh, that we create the atmosphere for people to stay. I, I just want to wonder if, if you can talk in general about your experiences in recruiting immigrants uh, to your company. Um, You've been doing it for probably maybe longer than a lot of other companies. What has been your experience uh, with uh, with immigrants?
2: Well, as I said, we've got a workforce and that's a, you know, if you're a small or medium-sized employer, that's a big commitment, you know, the amount of commitment we've got to in terms of folks uh, working on it. And so we've said to the provincial government, we said to the federal government, we've given them different suggestions. One is we had the Atlantic uh, pilot Process they put up federal government put up that I don't know about three years ago now, and uh, which was a very good initiative. Since we put that up, we we keep raising the bar on the standards. And you know, if if it's one thing, if you need to be, if you you know certain medical qualifications or something else, that's one kind of uh, requirement. But if you wanna if you wanna come here uh, from Brazil and drive a logging machine and make $50,000, $60,000 50 dollars 60,000 a year and your English is functional enough that we can work safely and productively in our world that should be good enough we don't because otherwise you come in on you have to come in on a 2-year work permit you can't stay you can't bring your family and all the rest of it we say look if the if the language skills and the t- technical skills are competent then that should be good enough right now you'd have to go uh, to go to take a high school equivalency uh, in terms of Testing your language skills have to be at a very high level. Even look, even if your if your mother tongue is English and you come with a PhD from Harvard, if you want to become a Canadian citizen, you're still going to have to pass a three or four hour language test. And to us, we should be more practical. We, you know, we understand that certain skills and there there's certain requirements that you know for certain reasons. But I think we're a bit too stringent about some of those things. Uh, you know, the prime minister wants to have uh, childcare, which is probably a good thing. And, and you know, and, and Premier Higgs uh, keep seniors at home more, not put them or let them go to government funded uh, operations. And we said, well, why don't we make it easier to get home care workers in the country? Uh, they don't have to speak uh, perfect English, but they have a good work ethic. And, you know, we got double income families here in the province or in this region and they have a difficult time to get somebody to help with the children or their parents or something else we should we should be more practical about this i think i understand if you're going to be a doctor and you've got very serious medical qualifications that's something but a lot of jobs if you can perform the skill efficiently and speak the language good functionally then to me we should make it easier so we we've We've tried to advocate that with federal government in different ways. Uh, haven't had as much success as we'd like. I think PEI maybe has changed this a little bit, made the language requirements a bit less stringent. But uh, we, we've got a lot of people that have to come in here. If we're going to run this place, run the province, if people the governments are going to be able to have the type of uh, GDP that they need to pay the bills, we've got to get a workforce here that's going to stay here. So we think that's... Uh, we think that's very important. Uh, you know, I, I, central New Brunswick, if you want to log, run a logging machine, you might have been to grade eight and you can run a machine just fine. But now, if you're going to come from Brazil and run the same machine, you have to have high school equivalency and your English has to be at a certain level, you know, which is, we think it's just not practical. So we're, we're more, we need a little bit more help with the, the regulators on that one.
0: Yeah, I think part of the issue mr. Irving is is trying to level a playing field with, with Ontario. Uh, we had a manufacturing plant in Moncton close down uh, and consolidate in Brampton Ontario and I was told by one of the employees here that most of the workers in that plant don't speak English at all uh, and they had to use different kind of signage to make sure they knew what they were doing So I think there is there's a lot of different pathways for immigrants and I think a more mature market like Toronto uh, has an advantage. Uh, over New Brunswick. And in fact, that specific plant, uh, they were paying $24 an hour here, they're paying $17 an hour in Brampton. So now we're in a situation where wage costs could be lower in Toronto than they are in Moncton. So this is problematic. And one of the points here is to make sure that we're not at a disadvantage when it comes to immigration. But I I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, well, particularly about your Brazilian loggers. Now, you bring them here, and they, you plop them down in the woods in February. How, how's that working out? Is, are they actually surviving our winters? You, you, look,
2: you ask a very important question. because I, When the fullest talked to me about this, I said, boys, how's that going to work? How's that going to be practical? And you know what? These folks, we, we have a good reputation. We have a waiting list now. We've been at this about four years. Because when we first started, I thought, oh, boy, this is going to be an exercise. It's not going to work. But these folks come. They get in the machine, they run the machine, it's cold, So boys are gonna need long underwear and heavy clothes and all the rest of it, but the money's good and, uh, and there's lots of work. And so, you know, it's been great. And we have a waiting list now of folks who want to come uh, and work here. Because you know why? Because they can. They, they make good money, their family has a much better quality of life. Uh, we just got to get the language thing sorted out and we've got to make it so that yes, they'll live in Fredericton or Sussex or Chipmunk. And uh, and so on, but we hire the language coach, shouldn't we? You know, we have the settlement coordinator and deal with where you're going to get your driver's license, how you're going to get a medical uh, card, you know, Medicare card, and so on. We work through that. We don't leave them stuck. And same with European truck drivers. We, you know, how do you get the banking? How do we do the settlement? How are we going to get help? Get your wife a job if she can work. We got to do that. But we'd rather do that. Then say, geez, we're going to have to shut that operation down or move it someplace else because we can't find the people. That's what I talk about making our own luck, And that's what we have to do. So, But we need the government to be a bit more practical on that. We've even said to the government, we said, look, maybe what you should do, because this is a big exercise for small and medium companies. I mean, it's a big job for us. So we said you should have uh, maybe it's a concierge program or something where if I'm an employer, I'll pay a thousand dollars for the government to help uh, fast-track this. Help me get through the red tape and the hoops. Is it, you know, I, we don't. You have to make a commitment. You should, you know, if the, you want the government to do this for you. Provide that kind of help. Uh, you should pay something for it. And that's fine, but uh, or and maybe have a, a trusted uh, like we we call it. We told the government maybe a nexus program. If you're, if you're a quality employer in good standing and you know maybe you're prepared to put up a bond performance bond to be a nexus employer but that allows you to fast track uh the the, the rigors of this because some places in europe somebody might have to drive uh, six or eight hundred miles to go get a, a a fingerprint application done or something like that there's some very awkward things that you know would speed up Uh, some of these efforts. I mean, we have, I'd say we have a lot of experience, but we have enough experience at it to give some practical solutions, and we've given that to the government. But we think this is very important to streamline this. A, make the employer got to be accountable. Ask the government if they're going to do it for them. You pay something to do it. And uh, uh, don't just load it on the government. But if you're a good, uh, good employer, got a good track record at this, or you know, uh, just as a good, solid employer, make it a give you a give you a Nexus card, just like going through the security of the airport. Make it easy. Make it more efficient anyway.
0: Right. And then you, you can do some of the process when after you're already in Canada, Australia used to do that. You could bring them in within two weeks and then a lot of that sort of screening happened while they were here. But so, how long do you know how long it takes roughly to bring a worker from a place like Ukraine or or Brazil? Is it is it six months? Is it a month? Is it? Well, do you have any sense for of that it, it, it? You're
2: anywhere from four to six months, five months. Which you know you have if you have seasonal work to be done, or you you know you're making plans and whatnot. And for these people, if you're bringing in someone who's running a logging machine in Brazil, you know they don't have a lot of discretionary income. They can't say, "Well, I'll just take off and go to San Paulo for." a, Get the paperwork done and drive a thousand kilometers. This is about very practical uh, application, and I, 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 we tried to advance the concept that we in Atlantic Canada should be the pilot program for all account. Let's that was part of the genesis of the Atlantic pilot, but we think we need to take it a bit farther, and really get down and maybe take some specific companies, and say, okay, let's let's do a be a beta site for us. Let's get this going and figure it out. We, you know, just com- complain about things with the government is not productive, and we don't blame the government. We've got to work with the government and uh, provide innovative and creative solutions here. So we're we're very much engaged on this subject because because it's critical. It's because it's critical for a whole lot of reasons. Well,
1: yeah. Now, now JDI is really uh, taking advantage of the Atlantic Immigration Pilot Program, obviously. <clears throat> and uh, one of the things about that program that is becoming evident is that it's really helping with retention rates for people um, um, you know coming to this region. Uh, You've already made some recommendations on uh, how that program could be improved. Um, Maybe you could just talk about your own experience of retention. I'd I'd be really interested in in, you have mentioned it a little bit but Um, How are your retention rates of uh, foreign uh, workers who are permanent? uh,
2: I think it it would vary a little bit, but, you know, uh, you know, going from memory in the last uh, since uh, four years or so, I think the stats are somewhere around 75, 80 percent of, you know, uh, retention rates. The the last couple of years, it's gotten better. We're up to up to the mid 80s now. Uh, because we've learned, uh, we've learned, as I say, all these settlement processes, and we've uh, we have to do. But uh, yeah, I think we're around about eighty six percent, and uh, national retention is, uh, is it's about on par with the national retention, and it's better than I guess Atlantic Canada somewhere around mid fifty fifty seven percent. So we're doing better. We're running about the national average.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's it, I think after five years, David's around. 53% that, that have stayed here. But those numbers have to increase, obviously. David?
2: But, but, yes. but that's, yes. that that, but that gets back to this business about the language, getting your family here, getting rooted, and not say, i got a two-year work permit, I can't get my family here, then I'm either going to go back, or if I forget, I'm just transient, then I'm off to Toronto to a different type of job. So this is something we can fix. It's not complicated. We can fix this.
0: Yeah, the whole point of the Atlantic Immigration Pilot was to recognize that Atlantic Canada is different than the more mature markets such as Montreal and Toronto. And in fact, they took the Atlantic Immigration Pilot and turned it into a rural Ontario project. And they actually have uh, a, a different version of the AIPP, you know, in places like Thunder Bay and and uh, Sudbury and so on. So I just wanted to ask you, Mr. Irving, about it's really great to see that your company is embracing immigration. Uh, In 2019, the region, across the entire region, we brought in almost 20,000 immigrants, and that number is actually going to have to go up, uh, probably double or more. PEI is doing well. The rest of the provinces are going to have to elevate their numbers. So it's very important for government and our big corporations to sort of play a lead role there. It's harder for the smaller businesses. But do you have any uh, diversity goals established for your workforce moving forward?
2: Well, look, I do. You know, we're an equal opportunity employer. We've got all kinds of, we got some very good programs. As an example, Shipyard and Halifax, We've got a very good program going for single mothers in in, in women of color at the shipyard where we folks are working. And we say this is quite important for the government uh, to understand this. But it's, we've got folks who are either un, unemployed or underemployed. They might be working at Tim Hortons making $13 an hour. Another, they so we put a program together with the community college. They're becoming out as uh, class A tradespeople, and they're welding whatever they might be doing with a trade. And and so they're going to make $35 an hour, $34 an hour, $35 an hour, plus very good benefit plan. And so full-time work. And so we've got that going for, as I said, uh, women of color in Nova Scotia. We've got it for indigenous Nova Scotians. We've got it for African Nova Scotians. And you got to start. The Employers have to start and try. And there's, you know, there's, there's things that are not, uh, are a bit different to work through. And we had some challenges to get going. But I tell you, the community colleges are a huge asset. And I think that's just the governments really have to put their shoulder to the wheel on the community colleges. Because if you have a skill, if you have a trade, you have hope, you have ability. If you have a little bit of energy, you know, you can, you can get off. Uh, uh, lower income and get, 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 do better. And that's what we've got to do. So no, we're, we've got diversity. We've got, uh, it's changed radically in Atlanta, Canada here. You folks, I've known you both for 30 years, 30 plus years, and you do big changes in the, in the complexion of the population, but that's good. We need that extra spark, that extra energy. We've had too many people move away, uh, over the years and we need to, we need to get that, keep that spark, that energy here in Atlanta, Canada.
1: Just a couple of quick final questions. Uh, uh, many people are concerned that immigrants take jobs from uh, native-born uh, Canadians. What is your response to that concern? See,
2: you know, I don't see that at all. That, to me, is an easy out uh, for somebody to say, look, we're looking for people. I mean, that's the short answer. And, you know, uh, unfortunately, we have, you know, uh, we've got some folks, who, you know, we got an EI program here that's quite generous. And there's certain folks, you know, there's a good reason for that. But it's become a way of life in some communities to the point of that's not, we just can't, can't do do anything with it. So we need to, uh, we need to do something about it uh, to, uh, you know, uh, to advance this. But, you know, our immigrants are making the same wages, you know, as as everybody else here. This is not like we're bringing immigrants in at a lower wage. They're not going to Toronto you know they're not coming in here for 14 bucks an hour rather than 24. they're coming in at the same rates, same wages same benefit package as everybody else has or we have we've got a great group of men and women and across the organization so no we've got to fix this problem and we shouldn't take too long about it what you gentlemen are doing it's good i could get the word out there get the message out and uh, but we have to help the government with creative solutions Because on its own, it's just too difficult for them otherwise. There's too many other competing uh, interests. Just make it a bit easier to get the people here.
1: And finally, uh, Jim, uh, obviously the private sector has to play a bigger role in attracting immigrants to this region. Your your company is a great example of that. Um, What else do you think the private sector could be doing that would uh, make it easier for newcomers to come to our region?
2: Well, oh, look, I, look, you know, these are people, right? Eh? And like any, you know, you travel or you have to go to some place that's foreign, you know, uh, particularly if you have a limited income, you know, there's lots of challenges. So we're back, and we learned this early on about, okay, how are we going to have to carry the order? We have some settlement people that are going to go and deal with all the problems. So people, people feel welcome you know, they generally stay, you know, and so if there's, if there's reasonable opportunities. So uh, just like we tell the government money goes where it's wanted, you know, people stay where they're wanted. And, uh, that's, you know, I, I think this is not rocket science, but it takes some work and make people feel welcome. And, uh, you know, it's surprising uh, how in central New Brunswick and other places, People who, who come with uh, in places that are nothing's changed for a very long time in terms of the population. Now we introduce people who might have a different skin color. They might speak with a totally foreign language, but they're interested in moose hunting or fishing or you know and uh, hockey or whatever else is going on. So they it doesn't take long, and how accepting people are. We we find we have a very good acceptance rate from a lot of men and women who've been with us for years. And they say, yeah, we, that's the job. you better got to bring people in. Embrace it. So it's, I, it's good for the province and society for a number of reasons. But we've got to make them feel welcome, not complicated.
0: Mr. Irving, I, ca- I can't let you go without asking you about the future. Um, you've obviously got companies across the region. You've deployed a lot of capital in this region. Um, looking forward... Do you see opportunities for growth in the business in Atlantic Canada moving forward?
2: There, I think there's always there's always opportunities. There's always opportunities. Uh, then number one, though, we've got to you and you folks are on it. We have got to get the population up. We just can't. We can't. There, there's you know limited going to be limited opportunities if we have a declining population base or just a marginal population. You have to have growth. Like you have to have growth in the business. You have to have some growth in the population. And we're going to need it more than ever with the amount of provincial debt. or sure, someplace like New Brunswick has. We've got to get we've got to get that fixed now. The federal government uh, is going to have a big challenge there. So, no, there's opportunities, but the world is a very complex place, getting more so all the time. World's very small, you know. When they expand the Panama Canal, and you got these big ships, container, container ships, come in with you know 20,000 TEUs on it. World just gets smaller. And uh, you know where they've got either progressive policies. About business, or they've got uh, you know certain uh, regulations that make it easier for them to compete. Uh, that makes our job uh, a bit tougher. But we're in a great location. We're sitting on top of the United States, still a huge market, best in the world. Today, one of the best in the world. So, uh, but you have to work at it, and you're going to have to work harder at it. You're going to have to be better technology, better trained folks, uh, put the capital in. You can't get by because there's nobody going to let you get by. The world's too small now. You have to be good, and uh, so, so I've said all that. But there's still opportunities, no question about it.
0: We appreciate you taking the time to to uh, join us here on the Insights podcast this morning.
2: Okay, that's good to see you. folks.
1: You've been listening to the third episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Great chat, Don, David, and Jim. Mark Legier and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again next week.